today on Pence Exchange, the sacred foundations of European state formation. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Anna Maria Grismala Busset. She's the Michelle and Kevin Douglas Professor of International Studies in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University. She's also a senior fellow at Freeman's Pogli Institute for International Studies and the director of the Center at Stanford University. She's known for her research on state development and transformation religion and politics, political parties, informal political institutions, and post-communist politics. Welcome, Anna. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. From the 11th to 14th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church was Europe's largest and most organized institution. Unlike any other entity at the time, it had the capacity to tax, create law, and administer justice. Secular authorities had to grapple with it. They competed and allied with it but most importantly, they emulated it. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Anna Grismalabuse about her most recent book, Sacred Foundations, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. Anna, I want to start by asking a broad question about the book's central argument and objective. Did the medieval Roman Catholic Church cause political fragmentation in Europe, or did it only prolong and heighten it? I would argue that it caused it, and there are two reasons to think that. Um, the first of this is that prior to the church really gaining strength in the 12th century, Europe was not that fragmented, right? You know, even after the collapse of the Carolingian Empire, we don't see an immediate fragmentation. It's only when the church power really takes off that we see the rise of fragmentation, especially in the Holy Roman Empire. The second reason to think that the church was so important is because the church deliberately attacks what it sees as its biggest political rival, um, the Holy what becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire, and engages in all kinds of behavior, including coalitions, launching political crusades, and encouraging depositions, alliances, and so on, in order to fragment that area and to basically keep the Holy Roman Emperor on his back foot and unable to establish central authority. So let's go on that and focus on the book, Two Mechanisms, Competition and Emulation. So the church competed with secular elites for resource extraction, but the church also enjoyed a significant advantage of human capital and administrative prowess that the secular authorities wanted to copy. Could you elaborate how and why these mechanisms matter the most? Sure. So I think when it comes to rivalry, the main rivalry was not necessarily over resources per se, but over authority. So who had this, you know, what were the spheres of authority where were their boundaries? Who could make pronouncements on naming bishops or establishing churches or sort of you know, theological pronouncements or even naming kings? So the real struggle, the real sort of rivalry was over establishing these spheres of authority. Um, and eventually that struggle led to the separation of church and state as we know it uh, in Europe. When it comes to emulation, that was the main mechanism by which the church transferred a lot of its human capital and its administrative innovations to royal courts. 
And so what we basically see is the church develop all kinds of um, administrative innovations in the late 12th century, and then these sort of slowly spread throughout Europe. And by these, I mean um, administrative innovations, tax forms of taxation, um, all kinds of legal concepts and legal teaching, legal doctrine, um, and concepts of parliamentary representation um, and consent. What about the church legitimization role? Religious and secular authorities may also complement by legitimizing each other. The prime example, I would say, is the consolidation of the early medieval Catholic Church via its partnership with the Carolingian Empire. You do mention these aspects in the book, but you don't play their importance. Why? So I think you know, I think you're absolutely right, especially in sort of you know, for the Carolingian Empire, the sort of mutual constitution of authority and mutual legitimization was very important. And so, you know, popes named emperors, anointed emperors and emperors named popes, um, basically until the middle of the 11th century. But precisely because the church sought autonomy and it sought it sort of, you know, its own sphere of authority, that legitimization really comes into, that mutual legitimization comes into question. And so what happens after the investiture controversy, after all the struggles um, over establishing the boundaries of the spheres of authority, is that the church will still anoint you know, some kings and certainly the Holy Roman Emperor, but it really doesn't want to have the that legitimating role played by secular rulers. So it rejects the notion that kings can name bishops or that emperors can name popes, and it very much wants to carve out its independent sphere. So I don't think, it's not that the mutual legitimizations of mutual constitution of authority didn't happen. It's just that by the time that I'm, during the time period that I'm talking about, starting in the 12th century, it's deliberately rejected by the church. Um, and there's very little that the kings can do to reassert it. Based on that, what is special about the 12th century? So what occurs in the 11th, 12th century that makes the change possible? So there was a few multiple streams come together in the late 11th century. Um, there is the Great Schism. Right, which basically separates uh, the United Church into a Western and an Eastern uh, right. There is sort of you know the repeated assertion of power by um, the Holy Roman Emperors over the Church, including you know uh, Henry the Third basically naming something like four or five popes in rapid succession. And most importantly, there's a power vacuum that occurs around the same time that the Great Schism does in Rome, and the College of basically the Cardinals take this opportunity to establish a college of cardinals and establish the principle that the popes will be elected rather than named by the emperor. And from that, you have a series of very reformist popes whose main goal is threefold. It is to sort of establish purity within the church. They go after the sale of offices. They go after clerical marriage. They want to impose sort of theological unity. They want to centralize power with the pope sitting at the apex. And above all, third, they want to establish church autonomy for once and for all, from these um, secular uh, secular pressures. And all these streams come together to basically lead the church to engage in this massive reform effort, where it sort of asserts its authority, it centralizes it internally, and it very much rejects um, secular, so, you know, secular pressure. And because the very, you know, the, the new emperor back in, uh, back in Germany is very, very young, they get away with this for quite some time. And by the time that the emperor grows up and sort of asserts his own power, the church has already established a lot of this autonomy and a lot of this sort of uh, independence. So within the book, besides the main argument, you supported by basically quantitative evidence. You clearly show there is a strong quantitative association between papal conflicts and territorial fragmentation within Europe. Before we go into discussing the mechanisms here, 
I would like to ask you, what, how do you define what a PayPal conflict is compared to a non-PayPal conflict? Sure. So the definition is basically a conflict that directly involves uh, the papacy. And so whether the papacy funds it, whether the papacy blesses it, or the papacy directs kings to go after someone, um, all of that is coded as papal conflict. And so we see here sort of coalitions with secular rulers. Um, we have sort of organized efforts to depose kings. We have funding for specific uh, military campaigns. And above all, political crusades, right? We tend to think of crusades as these expeditions to far-off lands. But at least additional data that I've gathered since the book was published suggests that the modal crusade was really an internal political effort within Europe designed basically to either buy the papacy allies or attack the papacy's uh, main rivals and enemies. And all of that gets coded as papal conflict. Great. Uh, would it be possible to assess the opposite interpretation, like where territorial fragmentation really leads to papal conflicts rather than otherwise? Right. And that's the problem. You know, I don't have a sort of pristine causal um, identification strategy that would allow me to eliminate that uh, via data analysis. But I will say two things. One is the question of sequencing, right? So what we see is a relatively unfragmented Europe. The church gains power, and then the fragmenting takes off, right? And so it's not the case that the church goes after already fragmented territories. The church goes after highly, you know, relatively non-fragmented territory, and then we see the fragmentation after that. So that's one piece of evidence that's consistent with the story that the church causes the fragmentation, just the sequencing. But the second item we have is, you know, all kinds of qualitative data that suggests that popes were obsessed with basically balancing, right? What they wanted to do was to prevent another rival hegemon from arising in Europe. And so they didn't particularly go after England, even though it was, you know, sort of a relative power. They were totally happy to see that a conquista in Spain. Um, they're happy to see France centralized. They deliberately went after anyone who posed a threat to the papacy. And that chiefly meant the Holy Roman Empire, which at one point extends not just in Germany, but over the Alps in northern Italy. And then sort of, you know, an allied regime um, basically starts to take over Sicily and the Kingdom of Naples, um, which poses sort of you know, a pincer movement to the papacy from the north and the south. And that's who the church goes after. Um, and because the church goes after these actors, they're the ones who then experience fragmentation. Um, and they're the ones who are the main target of all these military efforts that the papacy launches. Yeah, that's the part that I enjoyed most about the book that kind yeah. of has an explanation about the heterogeneous patterns of fragmentation. Because basically what we see this in Central Europe is not really in when they're in the in the West. Spain That's right. I mean Spain gets fragmented between Portugal and and, Sp and Spain, but really it gets uh, tied together in England as well. France. France I I find it interesting precisely because the Great Schisms. So what happens there? So when the papacy divides between two wouldn't not you see the same kind of heterogeneous uh, influences there, like people wanted to separate right. France? So France is really interesting, right? Um, the papacy is perfectly happy to have the French kings like Louis IX and others centralize throughout the 13th century. And so France, I mean, again, we're, by the way, we're speaking about relative centralization and relative power, right? There's, you know, this is at a time where the whole concept of a state is a total anachronism as a centralization. So this is really more about sort of where can the rulers broadcast their authority, their kingship. And so in the case of France, you know, the kings basically sort of bring along together one chunk of territory after another, um, from starting from a very small base. And the papacy is perfectly happy with that until, um, you know, 
Philip the Fourth, by the end of the 14th century, basically sort of, you know, refuses to play along. Sorry, the end of the 13th century, refuses to play along, and not only wants to um, sort of name his own clergy, but he also refuses to hand over taxation to the papacy. And so, what happens is sort of, you know, a massive conflict that the papacy loses, right? And so, that is the start of the Avignon papacy, where Rome basically is no longer a safe place for the popes to be. They escape to Avignon, and during the Avignon period, um, the popes are actually, the papal administration actually flourishes. We see a ton of petitions, a ton of sort of, you know, um, requests for, for papal authority and for, for papal adjudication and its granting. But what changes slightly is this relationship between um, secular rulers and the papacy, right? Because it's clear that the papacy is there at the sufferance of uh, the French royals. So it's, a, you know, it's, it, there's no such thing as kind of, you know, a nice uni sort of unicausal and uh, linear relationship um, in these struggles. There's always a lot of give and take. And what happens actually is I know the Avignon papacy does really well until um, a pope basically in around 1376 or so decides to go back to Rome. And that's what leads to the schism, right? And it's the great schism that starts in, from 1376 until about 1417 or so that really breaks the spine of church authority. And with the great with that schism, you basically no longer see the church being able to exert this active role, either in sort of fragmenting authority or in helping to consolidate it um, anywhere in Europe. Let's talk a little bit about your definition of authority and how the church impacted. You talk about basically the church's innovations and advances in improving its governance capabilities that were later copied by the secular authorities. Which were those and why are they important? So, you know, there's sort of multiple, um, they're both sort of direct institutional templates and very important conceptual ones. So when it comes to the institutional templates, what we see is the importation, for example, of taxation procedures, not just collecting tax, uh, direct per capita taxes, but also auditing the taxpayers, which is something that wasn't done before. Um, we see innovations in the system of petitions and their adjudication. So how letters are, you know, how basically the popes administer justice and the fact that you can send petitions, there's a, there's a system of appeals um, and, you know, justice is delivered in this way. There's a fantastic book called Kings as Judges by Deborah Buyakanis that also shows how this takes place in England. Um, we also see administrative innovations in everything from the document forms um, to the system of courts to even the sort of Carolingian minuscule, the very handwriting that the church uses um, and sort of and develops further that spreads across Europe. Um, and here, of course, you know, it's something that I don't really talk about in the book, but it's very important. It's the use of Latin, right? That is the church's lingua franca. And that also there was transaction costs for all kinds of administrators elsewhere. So most of the, the sort of cross-royal communication is done in Latin precisely for that reason. And who does it? The people who speak Latin, you know, who are the bishops and the high-ranking clerics. So that's the sort of administrative template side, where basically so here you have these direct kind of importations, most of which occur through the bishops who travel back and forth and who occupy very high places um, in the administration of the courts, of the royal courts. We all, what we also see is a lot of conceptual importation. So one of the biggest sort of innovations that the church comes up with is really um, the introduction of canon law or is the systematization of canon law in the mid-12th century. So the, towards the end of the 11th century, we have the rediscovery of Roman law. And then roughly seven year, years later, the church presents, or it, there's a, a specific sort of document that presents the systematization of canon law as well, with enormous amounts of Roman law importation. 
And these basically become sort of fused to form the body of European civil law. Um, the first law schools, this is a sort of human capital story. The first uh, universities founded in Bologna in 1088 are law schools. Um, and they teach these sort of, you know, the sort of twin forms of law that become basically the backbone of the European civil law system. And really important concepts like the concept of a corporation, right? This fictive entity that can enter into contracts and can hold property rights. The concept of an office that lasts past the office holder's lifetime, right? The sort of, you know, the concept of sanctity of contracts. So a contract that is signed has to outlast the preferences and the people who sign it, um, unless there are stipulations that allow that. All of those come directly from canon law and from church practices. Um, and finally, there's the whole story of parliamentary representation, where you know three critical concepts of proctorial representation, which means that you know if you are the selected representative from your town, whatever decision you make at the assembly binds your community to that decision. So this concept of binding representation, the concept of consent, that it is necessary for all of those who are affected by a policy to give their consent to it um, via their representatives, and the concept of, sort of you know, majority and supermajority as a governing mechanism, right, as a decision-making mechanism, all come directly from the church um, and from church councils, which start to use this much, much earlier than um, their secular counterparts do. So the kind of range of both conceptual and practical templates that are being adopted by royal courts from the church is just enormous. Yeah, that last point, I think, is one of the most controversial because in the popular courtroom, I would say most people tend to associate the church with absolutism or absolutist ways of governance. And you speak a little bit about it. So how do you actually respond to those critiques or to those questions about the connection between church and absolutism. So the first thing I would say is that you know, when we talk about representation um, and about consent, we don't we are not talking about either suffrage and elections, nor are we talking about um, some kind of a policymaking role. So the councils are called basically you, know, you have selected representatives, not elected ones, selected representatives that give their assent to policies created by either popes or kings. So it's a you know, relatively limited note of, notice of the concept of representation, but it is consistent with the idea that you have to have consent of the governed in order to govern. Now, that doesn't sort of, you know, run counter to absolutism in the sense that um, church, you know, church teachings also have within them um, concepts that, you know, that basically say every, you know, every prince is an emperor in their own kingdom, that they can transcend sort of, you know, mere human law um, and so on. And so basically, depending on sort of, you know, which side of the church you can read, it is both compatible with this limited notion of representation or with uh, royal absolutism. And within the church itself, there's a movement called conciliarism that basically seeks to argue that councils should have final authority over popes. Um, and it has a sort of you know, brief blossoming in the middle of the 15th century. And this gets put down by the papal authorities, very much like uh, many absolutist kings put down uh, the national assemblies. But the concepts of the church develops, survive, right? So on one hand, I think papal and royal rule is entirely compatible with absolutism, but the conceptual apparatus of representation and consent and majority rule nonetheless survives and get, then gets resurrected much, much, much later on. So, you know, I think uh, the, the sort of church influence is compatible both with the story of representation and of absolute rule. And what gets picked up when is question fundamentally of politics rather than the church's influence alone. 
Within the book, you mainly focus on the secular clergy side, emphasizing, of course, this vital role played by bishops in creating this complex administrative apparatus. But I'm one to ask, what about the other side of the church? What role did clerical regulars and the mendicant orders play in either fostering or hindering the church's ability to control and administer Europe? So, you know, the orders were extremely, played an extremely complicated role. So on one hand, as, you know, Jonathan Doucette and Jürgen Müller show, um, Cluny, right, uh, was the source of, you know, the, the, the monastery of Cluny was the source of early reforms that lead to the spread of self-governance uh, across France and northern Italy, right, sort of self-governing towns. So they can have, you know, this very sort of uh, quasi-pro, you know, you know almost democratic influence. On the other hand, we have two other kinds of orders that play a very different role, right? And the first of these are the sort of the Mendican orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, which basically try to subvert university education, right? They sort of want to, they're only answerable to the Pope. They don't answer to the local bishops. Throughout universities in both France and in Italy, they can often play the role of sort of you know, radicals marching in and questioning the whole premise of the universities and basically turning the students, you know, in towards sort of you know, relatively radical ideas and you know, suborning university education. We also have the military orders, right, which also play a very complicated role um, because they basically become, on one hand, uh, sort of the crusaders that travel to the north and the west, sorry, the north and the east. So they basically convert Lithuania, Poland, Prussia, all those areas. On the other hand, the papacy basically allows them to you know, run rampant. Um, and so you have extremely violent and extremely sort of you know, bloody governance um, by these groups who basically work hand in hand with local with German merchants in order to exploit and to uh, to govern those those areas. So depending on what time you're talking about and which orders, the roles they play are very very different. Um, they can sort of support self governance, they can you know uh, make university education problematic, or they can basically act as bloody warlords um, in the northeast sections of Europe. But the net, the net effect will be lesser than the the secular side of the church. I think so, yeah. I think you know, precisely because these effects are so heterogeneous across time and space, um, if we want to look at sort of, you know, a more sort of fundamental effect, right, it, that's the papacy is where we want to look to. That's a much more consistent effect across Europe. So you don't go to the Protestant Reformation, but, I mean, the, Luther was basically a, a part of a medical order himself, so he was training that. So do you see a decline in the church ability to tax, administer law by the 16th century? Or what causes the decline that leads to the Protestant Reformation? So, you know, the, the church becomes a victim of its own success, right? Because it transfers all these resources, whether human capital or, you know, sort of the conceptual apparatus of representation and governance and law, or sort of, you know, the, uh, the very sort of institutional examples. And what happens is that secular rulers not only adopt these, but they perfect them, right? They have every incentive to run away with these, these kinds of resources and to really make full use of them. And so two things happen. On the one hand, the rulers very much sort of start to stand up against the papacy. We already see this at the beginning of the 14th century with Philip the, sorry, the, the 15th century with Philip the, uh, the fourth, right? Who basically sort of, you know, asserts power over the papacy and says that, you know, he's not going to listen to uh, papal requests. And over and over, kings really sort of, you know, start to sort of use their newly found powers to question papal authority. And this already happens before the Reformation. Um, basically, the whole story of the 15th century is of the church being on its back foot, partly because of the schism and partly because the kings and the secular rulers have become so much more powerful. 
The second aspect to this is that precisely because the church fragments territory so thoroughly in the Holy Roman Empire, ironically, that allows the Protestant Reformation to not just take off, but to survive. So, you know, Lutherus and Wittenberg and Charles V, the emperor, is just as opposed to Protestantism as is the papacy. But Luther is protected by Frederick, right, the local, the local governor, who basically sort of says, no, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go after Luther. I'm going to protect him. Um, and that's how we know. So the Protestant Reformation spreads not by taking over nation after nation, but by taking over some you know, small principalities within the Holy Roman Empire, forming this patchwork, um, which, as you know, Davide Cantoni and others have shown, um, consists of sort of you know, contiguous, sort of a sort of continuous takeover of territory eventually. Um, and the idea here is that you know, Protestantism diffuses across this highly fragmented landscape, and it's protected by the fact that you have all these heterogeneous preferences among the, the people who really matter, the local sort of new lords. Um, and so you, know, you have these sort of very strange effects where, on the one hand, the kings have gotten so much more power than they used to have, and so the church is no longer as necessary. And secondly, the church was so successful in fragmenting territory that that allows the Protestant Reformation to initially arise and to survive. So in a weird way, by the 16th century, the, you know, the church is a victim of its, own, of its own earlier successes. I want to change the geographical scope a little bit, because I know you focus on Western Europe, but as an obvious comparison of what happened there is Eastern Europe. So the Eastern princesses, I would say, remained as fragmented as Westerns, even in the presence of a decentralized and relatively incohesive Orthodox Church. So what makes the Catholic Western Europe different from Orthodox Eastern Europe. So, you know, the, what happens in 1054 with the sort of split between the Eastern and the Western Church is that the Eastern Church runs right into the arms of the secular rulers. There's a very opposite reaction. So whereas the Western Church wants to assert its autonomy and independence, its own separate authority, and it enters into this whole cycle of emulation and tribalry, the Eastern Church seeks protection um, from, you know, the, the Byzantine emperors, basically, and just runs straight into their arms. And that has two effects. Um, on the one hand, there's no separation of church and state. The two authorities are twinned, and the secular authority actually exercises more power over the, um, the ecclesiastical authorities. So, you know, patriarchs are named by, by the emperors. Uh, there's, you know, the sort of, even the theology is influenced by the emperors. There's no sort of separation of church and state that we see in the West. The second consequence is that as a result, the church is unable to either innovate or to spread this kind of innovation to uh, secular rulers. And so what we see instead in Eastern, so in the Eastern lands, whether it's Russia or Greece or, uh, or basically sort of, you know, the lands of the Eastern church is sort of a fundamental stagnation. Um, the same kind of offices that were held by the Roman emperors are still preserved as if in amber in the sort of 13th and 14th century uh, Byzantine uh, administrations, right? There's no innovation, there's no emulation, there are no sort of legal or uh, represent representational uh, innovations or um, changes. What instead we see sort of massive institutional stagnation because the church is not in a position to offer any kind of guidance, templates, uh, you know, anything to diffuse or to emulate. Uh, the other major Westerner or Mediterranean influence, of course, is Islam. And I know that you do not talk about it, but is there something special about Islam? I mean, the golden age of Islam was precisely in the 11th, more up to the 11th century. So after that, they started to decline, but they more or less followed the same pattern that you described now with the, the secular authorities being co-opted very early on. So is there any difference? Yeah, you know, I think there's... Uh... 
I, I mean, there are obviously you know, theological differences. Um, and I think what, what's interesting is that, you know, in Islam, the caliphate fuses political and religious authority from the start. They're not separable, right? Um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're seen as distinct, but not autonomous of each other, right? So basically, the emperor sort of, you know, governs the church much as he would uh, his lands. Um, so I think that's the one distinction. Um, but, you know, I'm not enough of an expert on either the Byzantine Empire or on Islam to sort of talk more cogently beyond that. I think Timur Quran and many other scholars have you offer very cogent explanations of why we see this great divergence uh, between Christian Europe, Western Christian Europe and um, Islam starting around um, the 11th century. As a final question, I would like to ask your perception of the church's broad net effect besides just state formation. So let's just say had the Catholic Church not existed, Borders may have been drawn differently, and some elites may have been empowered more than others. But do you see the Roman Catholic Church as an indispensable condition for the rise of Western Europe in the world in the 16th century onwards? You know, I think that the church sets us on a path um, that basically, you know, it, it, the path that's familiar to us from the 16th century onward is one that the church initially sort of no paves, right? So this whole idea of the, of the Enlightenment, um, of, sort of you know, all kinds of new innovations would not have been possible had the church not come up with notions of contracts and corporations, right? I mean, the whole idea of a corporation, as Quran and others have shown, is absolutely critical to the kind of investment patterns and the kind of uh, economic growth that we see and the, and the difference, frankly, between sort of Western Christianity and Islam, right? And those are concepts that come from the church itself much, much earlier, long before the Protestant Reformation. So a lot of the things that we associate with sort of, you know, the unique European path after the 16th century, the sort of investment in human capital, the prevalence of the rule of law, all kinds of, sort of you know, legal tricks and concepts that make economic growth possible, like property rights, sanctity of contracts, corporations, all come initially from the church. And that's not to say that the church sort of, you know, sustains them in the 16th century or beyond, but they're there and they're the raw material with which the sort of European takeoff um, is made possible. Well, thank you very much for your time. I have enjoyed the discussion. Great. Thank you so much. Good or bad, the Church's role in shaping the early Westerner political foundations cannot be neglected. By the 11th century, it had become Europe's most important political entity. Kings, nobles, and the rest of the people had to contend with their power. Through their engagements, we got the early fiscal and judiciary innovations that, paradoxically, eventually led to the secular world that we now live in. Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at 
pen underscore exchange. Stay tuned.